It's a great joy to greet you in the name of the Lord, to gather here in worship. We have a tendency to think that worship happens only when we're in the right mood or whatever else. But everything is worship. All of life is worship. And enjoying each other's company is worship. In fact, enjoying coffee can be worship. And so, that we should eat together before we start is worship because it's an expression of our fellowship. Actually, I don't know why that's the case. It would make a lot more sense if we would never eat when we're together because when you're eating, you're chewing away, it's rude, and somebody always spills something on the shirt and whatever. I said, so, but for some reason, it's universal. People who are in good relationship with each other eat together, which reminds us of our topic today. What do we do in the presence of the Lord? Now, of course, I have to distinguish or I have to emphasize that there's no such thing as localized presence of God. I mean, as if God is just boxed in in one place. It wasn't that way in the Old Testament, and it's not that way today. God is everywhere, but especially where two or three are gathered in His name, that's not new in the New Testament. God says to Jeremiah, I will be with you. He says to lots of people, I will be with you. He says to the Israelites as a group, I will be with you as you enter the land. It's not just He's in the box. So, God is present everywhere. All of life is worship. And if all of life is worship, what we do in the box has, if all of life is not worship, what we do in the box has no positive effect with God. So that if I haven't been walking humbly with God Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, barging into the throne room on Sundays, sacrilege. But now, this morning, we want to talk about what should we do when we gather for worship. Now we're talking about the corporate gathering of God's people. Tomorrow, in the, the meat session of the morning sandwich, we're going to talk about, does it make a difference what this place looks like when we gather? And we'll talk about localized sacred space. Now we're going to talk about localized sacred activity. What do we do in the presence of the Lord? And of course, um, you know, we're New Testament Christians, aren't we? And so we go to the New Testament, and what does the New Testament tell us to do in the presence of the Lord? Not much. There's precious little information in the New Testament about how we should conduct the Sunday morning service. The closest you get is Acts 2, 42. And this is not a prescriptive text. It's a narrative text. 
It tells us what they did. Did anybody command them to do this? We don't have a record of the command, but here it is. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Oh, that's the food part. They ate together. Now, of course, there's some debate whether this is the Lord's table. We'll come to that yet. And then, finally, uh, to prayer. And then it mentions that they had everything in common. It's a community at work and at fellowship. So, when we ask the question, what do we do in the presence of the Lord? Biblically speaking, New Testamentally speaking, there's actually limited information. And I have a feeling that actually there's lots of room for variety here. And in different cultures, different parts of the world, they'll probably answer it differently. God is more flexible than we think He is. Uh, but in any case, I'm going to start by asking, uh, what did they do in the First Testament, the Old Testament, Israel? And then we'll come back and ask more questions, more pointedly, in the New Testament, what help is there? I remind you of our definition or explanation. We had a nice paraphrase. True worship involves reverential human acts of submission and homage before the divine sovereign in response to his gracious revelation of himself and in accord with his will. That's true revelation. What did they do in the Old Testament? Well, let's go to a couple of texts. We had the first one yesterday, Micah 6, 6 to 8. This gives us the standard line. What can I do in the presence of the Lord to impress God? And this is the way most of us think that worship happened. It was basically a matter of following the detailed regulations of Leviticus 4, 5, and 6. The sacrifice. So Micah asks, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So it's all about the sacrifice, the stuff, what will impress God? And then, of course, we had the final answer. He's told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. But now we're talking back at all of life. If that part isn't in order, none of the rest will matter. So what I want to do, though, is ask, is that Micah picture the whole picture. When you think of what the ancient Israelites did in worship, don't you feel sorry for them? It must have been totally boring. You bring your ox or you bring your calf or you bring your sheep and you give it to the priest and you just stand there and watch while he sacrifices this thing. And you wonder how he can remember all the rules, how exactly how to do this, the ritual. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12. It's interesting, Deuteronomy 
has actually precious little to say about what we do in the presence of the Lord, but it has a profound theology of worship. It's not a manual handbook for priests. It's a theology for the people. Deuteronomy 12. We read some of this yesterday. When you enter the land, you're supposed to wipe out everything that the Canaanites are doing. Don't even look at how they are, are worshiping their gods. You don't treat the Lord the way they treat their gods. But this is what you must do. You shall wipe them all out. Then when we get to, to verse 5, look it. You may seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and to establish it there. The chosen place. God tells the Israelites in advance, once you have rest in the land, I will tell you where my chosen place is. There you may come. Now, I know your translations all have imperatives here. There you shall come, or there you must come. But I think we need to interpret this more as an invitation to worship in the presence of God than an imperative. It is both, but you'll see how this works out or why this is important in a moment. Uh, the end of verse 5. There you may come. Now, your translation probably has, there you shall go. Does it? There's a difference between there you may come and there you must go. If it says come, what is it? Who, from whose perspective? God's perspectives. God is saying, come. God wants us in his presence. And he gives the Israelites all kinds of excuses to get them there. Changes everything, doesn't it? The ver Hebrew verb here is come, not go, as if you're sending somebody away. No, you're calling them. And if you don't like that interpretation, read on. And there you may what? Take your burnt offerings? No. It's bring. Again, that's the same perspective. Bring it to me. There you may bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow, vow offerings, your free will offerings, the firstborn of your herd and your flock, a long list. I think there's seven in here, aren't there? All your offerings bring. And of course, we feel so sorry for them. They had to, wouldn't they be forever going off to the temple to worship? Bring them. But why all these offerings? Because God wants you in his presence. So it's not just the offerings at the annual festivals, Passover, Sukkot, the Festival of Booths, and the Festival of Weeks. It's not only those. But if you have a flock of sheep, whenever that ewe gives birth to her first lamb, bring it to me. Why? Because God wants you in his presence. Or you're cow has her first calf. 
bring it to me. It's another excuse for God to have this time with you. It's fabulous, actually. The firstborn of your herd and the flock. There you... Uh, verse 7. There you must eat before the Lord your God, and you must celebrate. Really? Can you command people to rejoice? Well, I guess you can. But you can't command people to be happy. Well, you can command, but it just doesn't make any sense. Because joy is something that comes from the inside. There, and again, translated as invitation. Bring your stuff to me, and there you may eat before the Lord your God and celebrate in his presence. Who? You and your households in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. God has given you a hundred reasons, hundred occasions to say thank you for his goodness and his grace. Changes everything. The joy of worship. What do we do in the presence of the God, of Lord? Celebrate. And of course, again, eat donuts, Krispy Kremes, whatever else. Eating in the God is the host. He invites people, bring your food. And then when you've brought it, he says, go ahead, sit down. Let me serve you. Did you know that most of the offerings people brought to the temple were not burned up on the altar? The whole burnt offering was burned up. The sin offering was burned up. There are several offerings that were burnt up that go up in smoke. But most offerings are actually fellowship offerings. You bring them to the temple, and it's called the Lord's table because this is his food, but on the other hand, God doesn't eat. You know, in pagan worship, you want to keep the gods happy by giving them lots of good food so they smile at you and will bless you. And God says, if, if I wanted to eat, I own everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. They're all his. If he was hungry, he could eat anyone he wanted, anything he wanted. He doesn't need food, but he has this insatiable desire for fellowship. He says, bring your offerings, sit down, sit at the table, eat, because he wants you. Did you, know, did you, did you notice that in, in, ancient, in the ancient world, if you have a suzerain vassal relationship. I have to explain those words. The suzerain is the Lord. I use these words in the book, and sometimes I don't explain what I'm... The vassal is the servant. This is not a covenant between equals. It's a covenant between a big person and a little person. A suzerain, master, lord, and servant. Father, son. That's also used in this kind of thing. But in the ancient world, the Lord would never eat with the servants. Remember Joseph? His brothers come to him in Egypt. 
and he puts on a banquet for them. And his brothers are amazed. How does he know who's the oldest here? And so he has them all sit at the table. Meanwhile, Joseph is in the back room. Joseph doesn't eat with them. The prime minister wouldn't eat with the plebs. It's quite natural. God doesn't actually eat with them, but he is the host. Here, sit down, eat. Let me serve you. And the food that you brought, the offerings you brought, is the banquet there for you. Eat in the presence. Celebrate what God has done. But read on. Look at, skip over to verse 10. But when you cross over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as your grant, when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to establish his name there. There, here again, you may bring all that I command you. Burnt offerings, sacrifices, tithes, contributions that present all your finest votive offerings that you, that you vow to the Lord, and you may rejoice. Again, you must rejoice. You know, it's like with our kids when we're going somewhere. Are we happy yet? We will enjoy this. <laughs> no, 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 no. There you may rejoice. And again, in everyday English, we don't use rejoice. I grew up on a farm, and, and we had sheep. And uh, after the first birth, which is usually single, sheep often have doubles, twins and triplets. And there was one year when we had a, a, a you gave birth to two. We called one Joyce and the other one's Rejoice. <laughs> That's the only time in our house we ever used the word rejoice. Do you ever use that? That's not English, not American English. So why do we do it here? Our, there are words we use that express what this is about. And I think celebrate feast, whatever. There you may celebrate before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants, your female servants, the Levite in your towns, since he has no portion or grant of land with you. What did Old Testament saints do in the presence of God? They celebrated. Notice I said saints. There are lots of people for whom this was merely duty. During the week, they lived like they wanted, and then at these festival occasions, they would bring their offering as if to obligate God to bless them. But that's not what it's about. It's not obligating God to do anything. It's not an obligation. It's a privilege. Come, eat in, the, in my presence. I can't wait till you're back. That's what God says. So that when we gather, for this translates perfectly to where we are. God delights when his family is together in worship. It's not just something we have to do. Our kids will say that in the morning. Do we have to go to church or Sunday night or whatever? Do we have to go? No, you don't have to. You get to. Changes everything. We get to come into the presence of the Lord. No wonder Psalm 95 started out with, sing for joy to the Lord. 
the rock of our salvation. He's invited us to come to his presence to celebrate. Why wouldn't we? Well, if you read the whole book of Deuteronomy, again, this is not a manual on worship, what to do in church, but it's a theology of worship. The, the expression, the place that the Lord chooses for his name occurs 21 times in the book of Deuteronomy. It's a big deal. Looking forward to crossing the Jordan. When they have rest, I will identify the place. And then under David, it's finally fulfilled where they build the temple. But if you look in Deuteronomy at what they did at that place, it's remarkable. Why would you go to the place, chapter 31, 11, or 16, 16? You go there to, to see the face of the Lord. Really? But that's the expression that's used. This is a language of direct encounter with God. Of course, no one can actually see God. And so... See the face of the Lord. That means a personal meeting with God. Second, to hear the Torah read, especially at the festival of booths, our cult, every seven years after Moses has given these final sermons, he writes them down, he hands the scroll to the Levitical priest, and he says, every seven years when all the people gather, read this Torah to the people, that they may hear, that they may learn, that they may fear, that they may obey, that they may live. That's what you do in the presence. You hear the Torah. Third, thereby learn to fear the Lord, your God. The fear of the Lord is what? The first principle of wisdom. If you don't start with fear, I mean, if this is a seminary course, wisdom 101 is the fear of the Lord. If you don't start with this prerequisite course, everything else, everything else will be wrong. You'll flunk. You're a failure. This is why Deuteronomy 10, what now does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve him, and to keep his commands. Did you notice that? It's like five. Why are there five here? I think it's because we've got five fingers. Why do we have ten commands in what you call the Ten Commandments? The Bible never does, so I don't, but you do. The Ten Commandments. Why ten commands? Scholars agree. It's, it's a mnemonic device. It's to help you in your memorization and your recitation. You know that there's one for every finger. And in Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 11, verse 1, you've got these five things. What does the Lord ask of you? The interesting thing is it says nothing about circumcision. It actually says nothing about sacrifices. And all the other liturgical stuff that the Israelites, what does God, you know, we always think that when Paul is writing to Romans and to Galatians, he's offering a whole new approach to religion. You see, the Judaizers are all about being sure that you keep kosher food laws and you, and you keep the festivals and 
glad you insist on circumcision. You don't get these right, you get nothing right. These are the badges of the people of God. And Paul says, faith working itself out in love. Where do you get that? From Moses. Because that's exactly what Moses is. Do a study of this sometime. What does Moses do or think about physical circumcision? You've just answered the question. Nothing. Moses does nothing about circumcision. And he never talks about physical circumcision. Really. And this is the big deal with the Judaizers. No, do a, do a study. I mean, God calls Moses to go and get the Israelites out of e Egypt. And on the way back to Egypt, there's that strange event in that hotel room where the Lord is about to kill Moses. And in the nick of time, his Midianite wife circumcises their son. And he said, what, Moses, you're supposed to be leading the Israelites out of Egypt? You haven't even circumcised your son? And his Midianite wife has to do it? It's obviously not a big deal to Moses. The other, the other thing to notice is that th those 40 years in the desert, a whole new generation is born. So that when they enter the land, the population is almost equal to what came out of Egypt. The interesting thing is right at the beginning of Joshua, after they cross the river, they go to Gilgal. They've taken Jericho. They go to Gilgal. First thing they have to do is circumcise all the males. The text says they hadn't circumcised them in the last 40 years. Moses, what, are you, what kind of leader are you? I've got lots of questions. What's up with Moses? Moses talks a lot about spiritual circumcision. Circumcise it for your hearts. The Lord will circumcise you. He can use the metaphor, I am uncircumcised of lips. He knows the idea. But he does nothing about it. And then when he asks in Deuteronomy 10, what now does the Lord your God require of you? He says nothing about circumcision. He says, fear the Lord your God. Walk in his... That's the, the pointing finger, which means... Walk the way God, walk, God tells you to walk, or walk the way God walks. Walk in the ways of the Lord. Three verses later, he says, The Lord loves the alien by giving him food and clothing, so love the alien. Uh, love. On, on, on my, at most of our fingers, this is the dominant finger, the longest one. Love is right in the middle. You got five, the middle one is love. This is Deuteronomy. Covenant commitment demonstrated in action in the interest of the other person. Love. And then serve the Lord. Oh, this is in our culture, the ring finger. What does this ring mean? I have given myself to my wife at your service, your vassal, husband. No, be submissive to one another. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and said, I love you. No, sent Valentine's. No, 
gave his life for her. That's service. And then the little, the pinky, keep the commands. We think that's number one for the Old Testament saints, don't we? What did God ask of Israel? Keep the commands. No. Well, yes, but only after all these other things are in place. Fear, walk, love, serve, obey. We've got the cart before the horse. We, we would start here. Keep the command. No, 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 no. Learn to fear the Lord because if you don't fear, you won't obey. It's interesting. The book of Malachi, we'll come back to this, how important is leadership? The book of Malachi is all about there is no fear of God in this place. Right at the end of the book, what's the solution? Back to the Torah of Moses. Read the Scriptures that they may fear because that's the missing element. We'll come and talk about that some more. Four, celebrate the three great annual pilgrimage festivals, Passover, Pentecost, and the Festival of Booths. Five, present the offerings. This is what the Israelites did in the presence of the Lord. Recall the Lord's saving and providential grace. Every time we gather, it's a Thanksgiving service for all the blessings he has lavished on you. Six, to demonstrate covenant commitment to the Lord horizontally by gifts of charity to the marginalized. Bring the poor with you. Share with them what you... Seven, to demonstrate communal solidarity by bringing your children, your servants, your Levites, aliens. Y'all come. Eight, settle legal disputes before the Levitical priests. This gets mentioned only once. Chapter 17, verses 8 to 13. And then to observe Levites who serve in the name of the Lord, who stand before the Lord and bless the people in his name, when we would say, to come and receive the blessing of God. That's Psalm 24. He who has clean hands, a pure heart, has lifted up his eyes to idols, and has, in, and has kept his word. They will receive a blessing from the Lord. This is what happens. And 10, present their offerings and recall the Lord's saving and providential grace. Here's where uh, Deuteronomy 26 is such a special text. When you bring the first foot of your offering, you give them to the priest, and as you hand them to the priest, you say, my father was a wandering Aramean. <laughs> he went down into Egypt, and there the Lord multiplied the population, and the Pharaoh enslaved us, but the Lord brought us out, and he is giving us the land, and now I brought the first fruits of the land. You notice that this is what distinguishes Israelite religion from Canaanite fertility religion. Fertility religion is all about the grain, the crops, the herds. This is not about the grain, the crops. It's about the story so that every gift is a reminder that this is a concrete demonstration of God's faithfulness. If it weren't for God, it wouldn't be for us. We are entirely the product of his saving grace. So that when you bring these gifts and you eat in the presence of the Lord, you celebrate your salvation. Not just food. That's fertility religion. God wants you to be healthy, happy, and successful. That's fertility religion. 
God wants you. Period. You get that? God wants you. And he has called you to himself. And this is a, rem- an offer, uh, a place to tell the story. What's missing in this picture? Music. Which is really humbling for some of us. I come from a very musical family, and my wife's family are even more musical. So I, I, I find this troubling. We know that music was a part of everyday life in the ancient world. People who go and get water from the well, they sing at the well. People at harvest time, they sing at harvest. When the Lord takes the Israelites through the Red Sea, they sing. There's lots of singing. But the interesting thing is very seldom do we hear of singing at worship, the regularly scheduled worship. Oh, you have a few. You have words for song. If you look in the Psalter, you'll have all kinds of words to sing, to praise, to give thanks, to make music, different kinds of words for that. But when you look at tabernacle worship, tell me if I'm wrong, please, but When I look at Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and whatever, all that tabernacle worship, and I look for, where's song in this business? There's not a single reference to music in connection with tabernacle worship. Now, does that mean they didn't sing? I don't think it means that at all. Our archaeologists keep reminding us, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Luther used to say, if you won't sing, I won't believe that you're a Christian. God's people sing. But the interesting thing is when we have the prescriptions for tabernacle worship, there isn't a single reference to music in the tabernacle. They sang after they crossed the Red Sea. In Judges 5, they sang after they defeated Jabin and the Canaanites. They sang victory songs, but these are special occasions. They're not what we do when we gather every time we gather, which reminds us that our preoccupation with music actually is not very biblical. It doesn't mean music isn't important. It just means that we have neglected. Jesus uses the words, the weightier matters of Torah, other things. Music is missing. Now, Deuteronomy knows about song. I think the whole book of Deuteronomy is Moses' last worship service. And Moses is Russian. Did you know that? You can tell Moses, I'm going to Russia in 10 days, off to Samara. Delightful. It's right near where my father grew up, actually. The first time I was in Russia, I I had to develop patience. Because in 1993, and they've probably been Americanized by now too much. In 1993, when we went to Russia the first time, that's just after the walls came down. I'll never forget going to the Sunday morning worship. It lasted three hours. And they always had three sermons. 
And I have preached at services where I was the third sermon, and mine was the third sermon. Try and keep the people awake, and you have to be a clown or whatever. But not in that context. There you don't smile. They're always dour, aren't they? They always had three sermons. And so when Moses is preaching Deuteronomy, he has three sermons. Chapters 1 to 4, Sermon 1. Chapters 5 through 26 is, uh, and, and then 28 is the second sermon. And then the last one is short, 29 and 30. Then you have the closing hymn, chapter 32. This is Israel's national anthem. I'm going the way of all the earth, he says. I'm about to die. Here, in my place, is a song. Take it with you wherever you go. That's really strange. The power of song. To, so long as Moses has been there leading the people, his job has been to be the pastor, keep them on track spiritually. But he's leaving. Joshua is a successor in a certain way, but Joshua's role is very limited. He's a military figure. He leads them in battle. He doesn't do other Moses kind of stuff. He's never called a prophet. Moses is. He gathers the people at the end for a covenant renewal festival, but on the other, he's not really a second Moses. In fact, in, 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 in fact, once they've taken the land and they're settled in their tribal territories, the leader can't be everywhere all the time anyhow, can he? How do you keep reminding the people of the truth of Scripture, the Torah? He gives them a song. Actually, it's called the Song of Moses in our headings of our Bibles. It's really not the Song of Moses. It's the song of the Lord because apparently he dictated it to Moses in the tent of meeting. And then he says, go and teach the people this so that they may teach their children from now on. That's why I call it the national anthem. Take it wherever you go. And the interesting thing is there are more echoes of Deuteronomy 32, the song, in the whole Bible than there are of the Ten Commandments. You hardly ever hear an echo of the Ten Commandments in the Bible. But there are echoes of this song everywhere because the prophets sang it. God's people sang it. It concludes with the national anthem. But there's nowhere does Deuteronomy explicitly mention singing as part of regular worship at the sanctuary. Does this mean they didn't sing? I don't think it means that at all. I, I think it means that the emphasis is elsewhere. They assume people sing. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let's celebrate. He's invited us to his presence. It's a given. But this silence cautions us against the inordinate attention music gets in our worship wars. It's not about the music. Music is about it, and we need to learn that. Now, if you look at the uh, Old Testament, you'll find that Music is there. There's the Song of the Sea, Exodus 15. The golden calf. They're dancing around it, and Joshua says, I hear the sound of singing. Is it a triumph in battle? No, it's not. It's actually a pagan song. So they're singing there, the Song of the Calf. The, you have the anthem of the people of God, but in the tabernacle there is actually very little. Things change, though, with David. We call it Solomon's temple, but it's not really Solomon's temple. 
It's David's. It was his idea. The blueprint, the blueprint was revealed to him, 1 Chronicles 28. David gathered the resources. David appointed the people who should, who should do this. Solomon is to the temple what Bezalel is to the tabernacle. He's the gopher, the one who puts it together. But it is David's brainchild. So the song, the sound of first temple worship. Now things get, David was a musician. We don't know that Moses was a musician or that Aaron was a musician. Maybe that's why there wasn't much music around. Because sometimes worship takes, the sh takes its shape based on what kind of people you have around. God gives gifts to every church needed for that church. So they, we know that David is a musician long before he's king. And he never loses that inspiration. Here, 1 Chronicles 16. They brought the ark of God and placed it inside the tent, uh, special tent David had prepared for it. And they presented burnt offerings and peace offerings to God. When he finished his sacrifices, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Then he gave to every man and woman in all Israel a loaf of bread, a cake, and dates, and cake of raisins, and Krispy Kremes. Come on, eat. Yes, let's celebrate. David appointed the following Levites to lead the people in worship before the... Oh, worship. Prostration, celebration before the ark of the Lord, to invoke his blessings, to give thanks, to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph, the leader of this group, sounded the cymbals. Second to him was Zechariah, followed by Yael and Shami Ramoth, Yael, uh, Mattathiah, Eliab, Benaiah. Anybody here pregnant? You need some names for your child? Here's a nice list. Benaiah, Obed-Edom, they played the harps and the lyres. The priests, Benaiah and Jehaziel, played the trumpets regularly before the ark of the Lord. And the Lord. And on that day, David gave to Asaph and his fellow Levites this song of thanksgiving to the Lord. And here it is. Give thanks to the Lord and proclaim his greatness. Let the whole world know what he has done. Sing to him, yes, sing his praises. Tell everyone about his wonderful deeds. Exult in his name. Rejoice you who worship the Lord. And then he goes on to recount all that God has done. Have you ever noticed that when we sing, I will praise him, I will praise him, I will praise him, I will praise him. Well, then do. You're not actually praising him. Whom are you praising? Who's the subject of the sentence? I. You're singing about yourself. You're singing about what you are doing for God. Here, David says, come on, everybody, give thanks. And then notice his celebration. Search for the Lord and for his strength. Remember the wonders he has performed, miracles and rulings. Your children and servants. He is the Lord your God. His justice is seen throughout. Remember his covenant forever. He remembers his covenant, the covenant he made to a thousand generations. And he gives a long celebrating all the good things God has done. We never get there. We just take a little sound bite from the Psalms and put it to music and we sing it over and over and over again. And we think we're praising God. No, we're not. It's a good intention. But then praise him. 
Praise of God is not focused on what I am doing in praise of God. You know, so our song should not be about what we think of God. It should be about what He thinks and has done for us. My song shall be of Jesus, the precious Lamb of God, not of myself. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. Really? Do you know that nobody in the Bible ever tells God he or she loves him? With the word, the basic word, I have in Hebrew, agapau in Greek. Nobody does it. Nobody. Oh, you're going to point to your, what about Psalm 18, 116? I read it in Hebrew. It's not what it says. It's a different word in one case, and it's a different grammar in the other case. Nobody ever tells God he or she loves him. You never have that verb with a first-person subject, and God is the object. The interesting thing, though, is what Psalm 119, half a dozen times it says, Oh, how I love your Torah, O Lord. That they can do. Which means I am committed to your Torah. But they will never brag about their commitment to God. Have you noticed that? We've got this whole thing upside down. We find it so easy to say, I love you, Lord. Well, you love your wife. You tell your wife you love her. Wouldn't you tell God that? Well, I suppose logically we might. Then why does nobody in the Bible do that? Think about that. But I think the reason is nobody would ever have dared to say, I measure up to what that means. I've made it. You remember Jesus' conversation with Peter? Do you love me? He uses agapal. And what does Peter say? Yeah, I love you, but he changes the word. I know that our New Testament scholars say it's just stylistic. No, it's not. Read the Old Testament. Peter will not be the first person in the Bible to tell God he loves him. After what he's done? Three times, and on oath, he says, I don't know the man. You know what love means? Covenant commitment demonstrated in action in the interest of the other person. How can Peter say, I agapao you? He can't. So he changes the word. And Jesus comes around in the end and says, fine, I'll use your word. You're right. You don't actually agapao me. Feed my sheep. Feed my flock. And he recommissions him anyhow. That's an amazing thing. Worship is not about telling God how much we love him. It's about celebrating how much he loves us. There's a book by a Baptist preacher, Osborne. forgotten what his name, first name is. It's called The Art of Learning to Love Yourself. Only in America. At the end, he says, and it's in italics, there must be something truly wonderful about us for God to love us. 
And I say, really? When I read the Bible, I discover there must be something truly wonderful about God for him to love us. What do we do in the presence of God? We celebrate his grace, his mercy, his blessing on our lives, not our piety. We are humbled by the fact that he should have invited us. Well, all of this is a sobering reminder. And so, again, I'm not saying people should never tell God they love him at the end of the prayer. I'm saying I won't. Doesn't mean that nobody should. But I want to be biblical in my worship. And if nobody in the Bible does, that's kind of a guide for me. And you know how I, I need to end my prayer? Not with, I love you, Lord. Aren't you lucky? With, my love for you is so pathetic. Fix this problem. Circumcise my heart to love you more. That's Deuteronomy 30. That's what we should be talking about. I think we're going to break now, and then we'll come back and talk about the place of song in New Testament worship.